Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, March 17th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we'll be, we will be presenting part two of our commentary on Paul of Tarsus and his epistle to Titus. It's subtitled, Leadership Morality... A husband of one wife. Of course, there is more to leadership morality than the issue of marriage, divorce, polygamy. But this has come up twice this week in discussions that I've been involved in. And Christians are all over the map, and they shouldn't be. Just obey the gospel in the words of Christ. And we'll all be on the same page about marriage, divorce, and polygamy. And it shouldn't be a, a a complex, serious topic. Topics like this only get complex, and and people become seriously at odds with one another because somebody's trying to push a particular agenda rather than obey the words of Christ. In the opening segment of this presentation of Paul's epistle to Titus, we set forth the assertion that Titus is the Titus Justice or Titius justice of the older manuscripts of Acts chapter 17 verse 7, who became a colleague of Paul from the time when Paul had stayed in his house in Corinth around 49 or 50 AD. We also demonstrated by referencing Paul's own statements concerning Titus in his second epistle to the Corinthians that this epistle, meaning this epistle to Titus, was written from the Troad as Paul left Ephesus in 56 AD, and that Titus met with Paul in Macedonia shortly thereafter, spending the winter months with him in Nicopolis of Epirus, before bringing Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians to Achaia, in very early 57 AD, ahead of Paul's planned visit there. With that, we had asserted that the statement made by Paul here in this epistle, that he had at one time left Titus in Crete, must have referred to an earlier time, to an event which happened between 52 and 55 AD, as Titus was with Paul when he traveled to Antioch, and departing from Corinth in late 51 or early 52 AD, something which is evident in his epistle to the Galatians, which was written just after that visit to Antioch. Now, depart, or perhaps from Antioch just after his visit to Jerusalem, because on that excursion, Paul first went with Titus to Jerusalem, and then went on to Antioch, and then to Galatia. Now, departing from his three-year stay in Ephesus, which is recorded, the, the fact that Paul's mission in Ephesus lasted three years is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Departing from his three-year stay in Ephesus in 56 AD, and arriving in the Troad, Paul had expected to find Titus there and he was disappointed when he did not find him. Writing this epistle, 
After his opening salutation, Paul says, For this reason I had left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things which are wanting, and establish elders by city, as I have instructed you. Understanding the context of these events within the chronology of Paul's ministry much better than we did when we had done our original translation in 2001 and 2003 when we actually reviewed it. We are going to revise the phrase I have left you in Crete in that verse to I had left you in Crete since the verb is in the aorist tense and either interpretation is possible. It is now evident to us that Paul had left Titus in Crete at some point in the past. But Titus did not remain there, especially since here, as Paul departed from Ephesus, he expected to find Titus in the Troad, which we have seen from his statement in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. Later it is evident that Titus did not return again to Crete, or did he re- nor did he reside there permanently. As he spent the following winter with Paul in Nicopolis, he went on to Corinth, and he is not mentioned again until during the period of Paul's detention in Rome, where it is said that he had gone off to Dalmatia, north of Greece. So Paul had left Titus in Crete at some point in the past, and now writing this epistle, Paul is in the Troad in 56 AD and did not find Titus there, as we have already asserted. Paul must have met someone in the Troad who told him that Titus was in Crete once again, so that Paul knew where to find him. And then Paul writes this letter to him explaining why he had left Titus in Crete in the past, which also seems to be reminding him of what action he should take Presently, since Titus must be in Crete again, for which reason Paul did not find him in the Troad. In other words, Paul leaves Ephesus, he goes to the Troad expecting to find Titus, but Titus had already left for Crete in order to address some problems in the assembly there, so he missed his meeting with Paul. Once Paul learns that Titus has again gone to Crete, he writes this epistle both beckoning Titus to join him in Macedonia, in Nicopolis actually, and reminding him of what to do with the hope of helping him to solve those problems. This is where we are now, in verse 6 of the opening chapter of the epistle to Titus, as Paul is advising him on the constitution of a healthy Christian assembly. And he says, if one is without reproach, now Paul had just spoken about elders, right? If one is without reproach, a husband of one wife, having faithful children, not by accusation of profligacy or insubordination, as we read in the Christogenia New Testament. The purpose for Paul's instruction here is explained in verse 5, where he said, For this reason I have left you in Crete, or I had left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things which are wanting, and establish elders by city as I have instructed you. 
So the instructions here and in the verses to follow are in relation to the type of men whom the Cretans should have set as elders over them. First Paul insists that such men are the husband of one wife. So we shall discuss that admonition at great length within the historical context of Scripture. Unfortunately, even a lot of identity Christians repeat things about marriage and divorce which are not actually found in Scripture, or especially which are not really found in the law. For instance, and I was confronted with this just the other day, there are claims that a woman was not allowed to divorce a husband. In truth, there is no law prohibiting a woman from divorcing a husband. You better read the law again. However, in ancient times, among Greeks and Hebrews alike, typically a woman did not hold any property. Although there were certain exceptions, among the exceptions were certain instances where a woman could inherit property among the Greeks. They were rare, but it did happen. And there were instances where a woman without brothers could inherit their father's estates among the Hebrews, among the Israelites, which we see as the daughters of a certain man who dies, have no brothers, and they go to Moses, and there's an exception put into the law in those occasions when Moses had inquired with Yahweh. But except for those rare instances where a woman could hold property or could inherit property, women typically held no property. And if a woman held no property, to leave a husband, she would inevitably end up either as a slave or as a prostitute in a pagan temple. Likewise, a woman leaving a husband could not be found with another man, or they could both be stoned as adulterers. There's no mechanism in the law whereby a husband had to recognize a bill of divorce filed by a woman. That's the key. There's no mechanism in the law by which a woman could possibly issue a bill of divorcement that doesn't mean that a woman can't leave her husband there's no law against it but furthermore a woman had no right over the children which first belonged to the husband so the truth is because of the cultural and economic circumstances and for her own well-being it was nearly impossible for a woman to divorce a husband but that didn't mean that there was a law against it. There was no law against it. The Levitical priests were not allowed to marry divorced women, being held to a higher standard. But other men were permitted to marry a properly divorced woman, and that is rather clear in the law. Where we say properly divorced, we mean only that the husband, that the first husband, issued a bill of divorcement. But we are certainly not promoting the idea that divorce itself is proper. Yahweh God hates divorce. Divorce itself is not proper. The Levitical priests were required to marry virgins when they married. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7, verse 14. But other men were not restricted in that manner in Deuteronomy. However, it is clear that from a cultural perspective, 
Brides were expected to be virgins. They weren't required to be virgins. They were expected to be virgins. Which is evident in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and elsewhere. A man divorced a woman simply by putting her out of his house. For that reason, the law requires a man to write the woman a bill of divorcement so that the woman, who typically had no property rights, had the opportunity to find refuge with another man. For better or worse, as we should be certain that not all men were good husbands, the customs and laws of the Hebrews helped to uphold the institution of marriage as Yahweh our God designed it, that a wife should be subject to her husband, Genesis 3.16, something which our modern views on marriage have ruined. To think that marriage is made and governed by the state, and that women can take the property of their husbands in a no-fault, state-enforced divorce lawsuit has ruined the institution of marriage while it has empowered feminism. If anyone protests that a woman is in need of the state for protection in her marriage, then that alone is obvious proof that the state is their God and that they have rejected Yahweh as their God. That was one of the significant errors that led ancient that led the ancient children of Israel astray in the first place. So today, we must ask how a man could be held to the same standards. Where the state governs a family, and not God, and the man is no longer the ruler of his own house. This is the predicament which liberalism and feminism have caused in our society. And if God is not mocked, it will not endure for long. Paul of Tarsus was dealing with the reality of the times when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if any brother has a wife that believes not, paraphrasing the King James, I'm, I'm modernizing the language of the King James, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away, meaning let him not divorce her. And the woman who has a husband that believes not, and if he is pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Now reading this carefully, we see where Paul indicates that it was possible for a woman to leave an unbelieving husband. So even if it was difficult, the possibility of a woman divorcing her husband, herself from her husband, did exist. This is also evident in the words of Christ, where it is recorded in Mark chapter 10, that he said, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. The act of putting away is the act of divorce. The bill of divorcement only officiates the act. So even Christ admitted that the possibility that a woman could divorce a husband existed. Where he said, and I, rep I will repeat, 
in Mark chapter 10, verse 12, And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Christ admitted that the possibility that a woman could divorce a husband existed. And there's no law in the Old Testament against it. There's no law prohibiting it. But in Paul's day, even though Roman divorce laws were somewhat more liberal, it was still nearly impossible for a woman who was not wealthy or who did not have the support of a wealthy family to support to, to divorce a husband. Women who were in the upper classes in Rome and had the backings of wealthy families often divorced for political reasons. Rome was a liberal, debauched state. Under Roman law, and Rome was very moral in other ways, believe it or not, under Roman law, a husband who divorced a woman did not need any permission from the state and was only obligated to return to her a portion of her dowry. The woman had no property rights beyond that. But a woman who wanted to divorce a husband needed permission from the state, and she still had no further property rights. And, as it was amongst the Hebrews, it also was in Rome, that the children belonged to the husband. A husband being divorced by his wife could even keep a larger portion of the dowry to help support the children. Because it was so difficult for a woman to divorce a husband, and because it was relatively easy for a husband to divorce a woman, the burden of responsibility for keeping the marriage intact and healthy falls mainly on the shoulders of the man. Even under Roman law, a husband or father who found a wife or daughter committing adultery could have both the woman and her lover put to death. Furthermore, under Roman law, it was possible for a man to be charged with adultery in certain circumstances, although there were customary exceptions permitted by Roman law under which he could have concubines or even visit prostitutes. I'm not saying I approve of that. I'm only saying that that was the way of life in the first century Rome. We have a citation here to support that an essay written by Thomas McGinn entitled Concubinage and the Lex Julia, or the Law of Julia, referring to the family of the Caesars, Concubinage and the Lex Julia on Adultery, the Law of Julia, which was published in 1991. Furthermore, just because the Old Testament had no laws against polygamy does not excuse the husband from the possibility of committing adultery. Once we understand this, we can better see the context of the words of Christ where he said, according to Matthew chapter 9, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, does commit adultery. Fornication is the only lawful grounds for divorce. And a man does not have license to leave his wife for another woman or to whore around. If a woman left a husband for reason of faith, 
Paul encouraged her to remain without a husband in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 11, where he wrote that if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But where Paul said that an elder should be a husband of one wife, this is not only in reference to divorce and remarriage, but also to polygamy. A man with multiple wives, or who has been divorced under these circumstances which we have described, is a man who evidently cannot keep a commitment. He is certainly not the husband of one wife. And if a man cannot keep a commitment to a wife, how should he be expected to be able to keep a commitment to the body of Christ? Neither does a Christian have just grounds for having multiple wives, if indeed he truly loves Christ. In the Old Testament, polygamy was tolerated under Yahweh's permissive will, and there are times when it was beneficial to a particular family, especially to Jacob himself. So there is no law against a husband having more than one wife, and it often happened as a matter of necessity. However, the only way that a man is actually commanded in the law to take an additional wife is in the event that his married brother died childless, and he is to raise up seed in the name of his brother, which would include the necessity of financially supporting his brother's wife in order to fulfill that objective. As a digression, we may not like that law today, and of course we are no longer required to keep it since since it was one of the kingdom laws and not one of the moral laws. But in ancient times, it helped to assure that every man in Israel had a posterity and that every woman also received a heritage from the family of the tribe to which she was married. If the law did not exist, then Tamar had no lawful right to do what she had done to Judah, and we would have no tribe of Judah. Likewise, Ruth would not have been redeemed by Boaz, and the line of David could have been cut off two generations before David was born. So there are at least two occasions, and possibly a third, where the line of our Redeemer was continued by this law. The blessed Abraham did not want more than one wife, and Sarah his wife insisted that he take her handmaid, thinking that she herself would not have a child by which to provide Abraham an heir. In this regard, it is evident that while Abraham did not intend to have multiple wives, Isaac is the role model which Christian men should seek to follow, since he never had more than one wife and he was blessed. In the Gospel, Christ himself expresses opposition to polygamy, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause, or any cause that may have been translated? And he answered and said unto them, 
Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So we see in the words of Christ that in the beginning Yahweh God made them male and female, not male and females. And that a man should cleave to his wife, not cleave to his wives. Christ is addressing the question of divorce while he is explaining the original purpose of God. Christians are challenged into choosing the original purpose of God in the spirit, the spirit of the law, and not pursuing the ways of the flesh, even if some of those ways were permitted under the law. Polygamy is not against the law, but it is not the ideal to which man is challenged to aspire, and it never was. Polygamy and divorce are both fleshly. Although they were not prohibited, they were not barred because, as Christ said concerning divorce, Yahweh had mercy upon the fleshly nature of man. As we read in Matthew chapter 19, He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. In 16th century English, that would be permitted you to put away your wives. Or put up with you putting away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. As for polygamy, there are many things which the law does not explicitly forbid. And to judge their merits, we must assess the positive aspects of the will of God. And Yahweh made men, male and female, as Christ had said. Christians must further consider this. Yahweh God himself is the husband of one wife. And if he did not have an eternal commitment to the children of Israel as his bride, the world would not exist today for its sins. We have one more aspect of Paul's instructions here to discuss, so we shall repeat verse 6. If one is without reproach, a husband of one wife, having faithful children, not by accusation of profligacy or insubordination. And we recognize that the grammar seems to be incomplete here in English. And that could probably be repaired with a few small changes and by adjusting the punctuation in relation to verse 7. But we sought, translating the New Testament, we sought to avoid a run-on sentence which is frequent in Paul's epistles and also sought to maintain a faithfulness to the literal meaning and grammatical form of each word without adding words wherever that was possible. So if we wanted to simply rephrase the verse, we would not be damaging Paul's original intention by writing, if one is without reproach, being a husband of one wife, 
He must also have had faithful children without any accusation of profligacy or insubordination. As Paul explained in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where his advice to Timothy is very similar to what he wrote to Titus here, a prospective bishop of the assembly must have already raised his own family, ostensibly so that he could serve the assembly with experience. And there he wrote in part, Now if one does not know to govern his own house, how would he care for an assembly of Yahweh? Now here in verse 6, the word for husband is aner, which is properly a man as an adult male. The word for wife is gune, which is properly only a woman as an adult female. The word was commonly used in secular writings in opposition to the word parthenos, which is a maiden, a virgin female. Maidens back then were indeed expected to be virgins. In this context, a man of one woman the words are interpreted to mean husband and wife, as they were commonly used in this context in secular Greek writings. The phrase, without reproach, is from the word anegkletos, which, according to Liddell and Scott, means without reproach, blameless, giving no ground for dispute, not accused or void of offense. It does not necessarily mean that people may not unjustly accuse an elder of the assembly, but that the elder himself is not guilty of anything which may beckon a just accusation. Paul had advised in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that an accusation against an elder, and this is the Christogenian New Testament because its meaning is more clear, an accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses. This means that no charge should be accepted without substantial and independently verifiable evidence of wrongdoing. This same word appears again in verse 7 here where we have translated it as irreproachable. After explaining that the prospective elder should be the husband of one wife, Paul then insists that being the husband of one wife, he should be having faithful children, not by accusation of profligacy or insubordination. And here the King James Version takes a noun, which we have translated as accusation, and translates it as a verb, where it has accused. And it may be imagined that the children are the subject of the clause. That's simply not true. Here the word is a noun, and being in the dative case, it describes the actions of the man having the children, and not the actions of the children themselves. Where Paul says, not by accusation of profligacy or insubordination, he is referring to the action of fathering the children. This proper reading also helps to support our assertions 
Concerning the use of the Greek word genesios here in verse 4 and again in 1 Timothy chapter 11. As it is defined by Jude in verse 7 of his short epistle, fornication is the going after of strange or different flesh, a meaning which is also evident in Paul's use of the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8, which is a reference, which is itself a reference to the race-mixing events of Numbers chapter 25. To have children without the faith or outside of the faith, one may be accused of having children profligately and in a state of insubordination to the law. Here we have translated the Greek word asotia as profligacy. I'm sorry, profligacy. Profligacy, I'm tripping over this L, right? I'm sorry. Profligacy can mean wastefulness. But this Greek word actually has an even stronger meaning. According to Liddell and Scott, and this is why it's very difficult to do an exact word-for-word translation, and this is why notes are so necessary. According to Liddell and Scott, the noun asotia, Strong's number 810, which they define to mean prodigality or wastefulness, is from an adjective, asotos, which means to be without salvation. It means having no hope of safety, abandoned or profligate. And in their examples of its use, they cite the tragic poet Aeschylus, who employed it in the phrase asotos gene which they in turn define to mean bringing ruin on the race. This is exactly how we interpret Paul's use of it here, as he admonishes Titus to choose leaders of the assembly who had faithful children, who must therefore be of the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel, thereby not bringing ruin on the race. The word asotus is formed from the negative particle a, and the form of the word soteria, Strong's number 4991, which means salvation. Literally, asotus means without salvation. And children born of parents outside of the Adamic race are indeed without salvation. The word anupotactus is insubordination here, again referring to the fathering of children. Because fornication is breaking the law, an act of insubordination to Yahweh, and race-mixing produces children who are forever without the faith, so they cannot be faithful to Christ. The King James Version only has unruly here, which is fine in certain contexts, But here Paul is referring to men who who are being considered for leadership positions in the Christian assembly. And anubotactus most literally means not made subject to someone or something, according to Liddell and Scott. Paul is advising Titus to make certain that the men chosen to be leaders 
are indeed subject to the commandments of God and have children according to his law, not having children in a manner contrary to the law. The accuracy of our interpretation is upheld in part by the context of the chapter. As in verse 10, Paul says that there are many insubordinates, vain talkers and deceivers of minds, especially those from among the circumcision. So there we see that Paul is talking about the prospective bishops here and how they have children rather than the behavior of the children themselves. Now, before continuing, we should discuss what Paul had meant by elders in verse 5 of this chapter. Because in verse 7, which we're about to read, in reference to the same man, he uses another term, which is usually translated as bishop. In the definitions of words used to describe ecclesiastical offices in the New Testament, as they are translated in the King James Version of our Bibles, on the surface, there appear to be two different positions of authority within the Christian assembly, which are elder and bishop. We are not considering ministers here, who are merely servants of the assemblies. The word for elder in verse 5 is presbyterus. It is the word which Presbyterian comes from a word adopted by modern Christian denominations, and it means an elder in Greek. Some modern sources claim that the word means priest to Christians. That's just bullshit. That's an outright lie. A presbyterus in Greek is most literally an old man. But pre-Christian Greeks used the term as one of respect for the leaders and rulers of their communities. And it was a patriarchal society. And that is evident as far back as the ancient Greek epic and tragic poets. And the earliest prose historians. In verse 7 here we see another Greek term, episcopus, Strong's number 1985, which is literally an overseer or a supervisor. The prefix epi means upon, and scopus is the ancient word from which we have our English word scope. So an episcopus is a look-uponer. According to Liddell and Scott, the word most literally means one who watches over, an overseer, a guardian. The literary examples of the usage of the word show that it was used at Athens to describe the officials responsible for supervising subject states, where in Rhodes it was used of the local municipal officials, which is closer to the Christian usage. But the fact that these two titles are used to describe one and the same office in a Christian assembly is fully evident here in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 7 and from Paul's discourse to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20 in verses 17 and 28 and in 1 Peter chapter 5 in its first two verses. Here in Titus, even according to the King James Version, 
We first read that the apostle was to ordain elders in every city, in verse 5, and then, in relation to the men chosen for that purpose, the admonition that a bishop must be blameless, in verse 7, whereby we see that the two words are interchangeable within the context of these offices in a Christian assembly, or of this office in a Christian assembly. The reason for appointing elders in a Christian assembly is so that they could oversee the functioning of the assembly, which is the purpose of an episcopus, or bishop. So in the King James Version, in Acts chapter 20 where Paul had assembled the leaders of the assemblies of Ephesus, we read in verse 17, that from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Then we read in verse 28, Take heed therefore, where Paul's actually addressing those elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. That word for overseers is from this Greek word episcopus, which the same King James translation often has as bishop in other places. Likewise, in 1 Peter chapter chapter 5, we read, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. There we see the real purpose of a bishop. Here we see the elders have the responsibility of taking the oversight of their respective communities, where the verb is the Greek word episkapeo, the verb equivalent of the office of episkopis, which is supervisor, overseer, or bishop, if you will. In medieval Latin, the Greek word episcopus, and this might work better in print, right? The Greek word episcopus eventually became episcopus, the first P being replaced with a B. And then in Old English, the first E and the US at the end were dropped. And in Old English, it became biskup. And then, finally, the modern word bishop. So, bishop is essentially the same word as episcopus, and it is not even a proper translation. Like other words, it was brought into English for the purpose of organized church government. But its final use is not the way it was used in the New Testament. In other places, the word episcopus appears as bishop. 
in the King James Version and most others in Philippians chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which actually corresponds with this chapter, and 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a related noun, episcope, which is a watching over, a visitation, the office of episcopus, and generally just an office. In the King James Version, episcope is the office of the episcopus. It's the office of a bishop, as it's translated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It's bishopric. Bishopric, as it's translated in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. And it's visitation in Luke 19, chapter 44. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19, verse 44. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Nearly all of these simply describe the position or office of a leader chosen by the people, which we will get to next, chosen by the people to oversee a particular Christian assembly. Therefore, next in order for discussion is where the King James Version has the word ordain here at Titus chapter 1 verse 5. The Greek word is katastami, which may mean to ordain or appoint, and it may also mean to establish, according to the Dellen Scott. So, in our own translation, we have establish. While the intended meaning of this one word here in this passage may be argued, we may see the manner by which elders were to be selected which was by an election of the assembly in both Acts chapter 14 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Although in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there was an election for a different purpose. So here we must read Kathistani as establish and not as ordain, which may infer that Titus himself appointed the bishops of Crete. That is certainly what the organized churches would prefer that we believe. But that's not what happened. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 19, we see a reference to a Christian man who was chosen by the assemblies themselves for the service of delivering certain gifts to the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. The word which the King James Version has to describe that choosing is simply chosen. But the word actually has a more distinct meaning. In Acts chapter 14, we see a description of Paul and Barnabas and the others who were with them traveling through Anatolia and setting up Christian assemblies throughout the various provinces. And it says in the King James Version, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Both of these words, and that entire translation in Acts 14.23 is actually terrible in the King James Version. Both of these words, chosen in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 19, and ordained in Acts chapter 14 verse 23, are from the Greek word kairotonio, Strong's number 5500. Kairotonio. Kairos means hand, and toneo is, a, is from a verb which means to stretch. Kairotonio literally means to stretch out the hand. 
and it was a common Greek word used to describe the act of voting for something by a show of hands. Liddell and Scott translate the word kairotonio, where we have expanded the abbreviations in their definitions so that it may be better understood. Liddell and Scott have translated the word kairotonio to mean to stretch out the hand for the purpose of voting, as Plutarch and Lucian both use the word. And with the accusative of person, where the person is the object of the verb, in the accusative of person it means to vote for or elect properly by a show of hands, as Aristotle and Demosthenes use the word. In the passive, Aristotle used the word to mean to be elected. The verb kairotonethenahi was election, and that's a substantive, as opposed to lakine, which means appointment by lot, the drawing of lots. The Greeks did that too. Plato used the word in that manner. With the accusative of either person or thing, it meant to vote for a person or thing, as Demosthenes used it, and to vote that something should be done, as we see in the writings of Aeschines and Demosthenes. The word kairotonio means nothing but to vote for or to elect, speaking of people or things. And it is clear that the elders, who are the men of the community who were respected as leaders by the people, were to be elected by the people themselves in each and every Christian assembly. It should not be any different in Crete than it was when Paul and Barnabas traveled through Anatolia. So we can't imagine Titus did it any different way in Crete. As Paul had taught elsewhere, and as we have seen here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this same process was undertaken for the appointment of other servants of the assembly, especially of ministers. The first precedent for this in the time of the ministries of the apostles is found in Acts chapter 6 where in the very first organized Christian community, the people saw that the widows were being treated unfairly, and they brought their complaints to the apostles themselves. There we read in part, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, they shouldn't leave the dispensation of the word of God and the preaching of the gospel to see to the feeding of the widows. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles did not directly appoint the managers of the people in this instance, but instructed the people themselves to do the choosing. So Titus was not the bishop of Crete, as the popular denominational commentaries so wrongly claim. Titus was never the bishop of Crete. 
But Titus was sent by Paul to Crete in order to organize the assemblies and manage the establishments of bishops over each of them. Certainly in the same manner as the process which we have seen here in the other relevant passages of scripture. Now Paul continues to describe the sort of men whom the assembly should choose. And an understanding of the simple New Testament Greek actually blows the whole Catholic Church right out of the water, right? It, it has no authority. None. Not from God. It's only an authority of men. It's never been an authority of God. Ever. And Paul says in chapter 7, It is necessary for that supervisor, meaning the man chosen, the elder chosen back in verses 5 and 6, right? It is necessary for that supervisor to be irreproachable as an administrator of the household of Yahweh, not stubborn, not prone to anger, not a drunkard, not a brawler, not shamefully desirous of gain. There is no space in apostolic Christianity for community oversight and management from any faraway office such as the one in Rome or anywhere else. Each community chose its own leaders and they were not imposed from outside. Those leaders were to exhibit sound Christian morals, having been married and having had their own children faithfully and only then were they qualified to be leaders of the Christian assembly. This idea of ordained priests ruling over men did not come into Christianity until near the beginning of the 4th century AD when the pagan temples of Rome adopted Christianity as a facade in order to maintain their own appearance of legitimacy. That's exactly what happened. We have not yet found the concept of an organized Christian priesthood in the works of the earliest Christian writers, Ignatius, or Clement of Rome, or Justin Martyr, or Theophilus of Antioch, or Tertullian, or Irenaeus. We certainly do not find it anywhere in the New Testament. The supremacy of the Pope of Rome was created by the laws of Justinian in the 6th century and before that there was no appointing authority outside of the people. Chapter 2 of Justinian's novels, his Novelle Constitution in section 131 is titled Concerning the Precedence of Patriarchs and it says Hence, in accordance with the provision of these councils, that was that, that was chapter 1, we'll get to that in a second. Hence, in accordance with the provisions of these councils, we order that the most holy pope of ancient Rome shall hold the first rank of all the pontiffs, but the most blessed archbishop of Constantinople, or New Rome, shall occupy the second place after the holy apostolic see of ancient Rome, which shall take precedence over all other sees, meaning all other bishoprics. Now, we must ask ourselves, 
if the New Testament really afforded the Bishop of Rome supremacy over the entire Christian world, why do we need the laws of man 600 years later to enforce it? That's just bullshit too. In truth, the Pope of Rome is only propped up by the laws of man. He is an authority of men. He is not an authority from God, and he never, ever, ever was. Not for one minute. There may have been early bishops of Rome who were good men, who had executed authority properly over their own local assemblies. But the Pope of Rome never had authority from God, except by the laws of men, and the fact that God uses tyrants to punish the children of Israel. The Pope of Rome, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, is our punishment, but he is not godly, and his office is not godly. This commandment is not a commandment of Christ or his apostles. The reference to councils here is to the four major councils of Christian bishops under the empire from the first council of Nicaea in the time of Constantine. But neither did they at first acknowledge the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, which was asserted but contested in the time of Eusebius. And there's documentation for that. While the word of Yahweh God, which of course includes the gospel of Christ, is the ultimate authority over each Christian assembly, as Paul often demonstrates in his epistles, the assemblies were charged with choosing responsible men to administer and oversee their communities. This is not only for church for an hour or so a week, or to keep lists and books. Rather, these men would act as the community elders and leaders in every aspect of community life. Being assigned with this task, they were the administrators of the household of Yahweh in each of their separate communities. Therefore, it is of the utmost importance that the men chosen maintain sound Christian morals. And aren't caught up in disputes between multiple wives which we see troubled the patriarch Jacob interminably. While of course Christian morality is not limited to the things here mentioned by Paul he lists examples. First, he lists the negative qualities, things which are not to be found in Christian leaders. And they include stubbornness, where we see that the elders or bishops of, a, of an assembly do not have final authority over their communities, and that they should not be prone to anger. A good Christian exhibits humility, and true humility is a willingness to be subject to the word of God. They should not be drunkards, or as the King James Version has it, where Paul repeats the admonition in relation to women in Titus chapter 2, and in reference to ministers in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They should not be given too much wine. 
because it is certainly permissible for a Christian to drink wine in moderation. They should not be brawlers, where the Greek word is plektes. The word is not meant to describe a man who will fight as ca- or, or who will not fight. I'm sorry. The admonition is not meant to describe a man who will not fight as cowardice and effeminacy are disdained in the laws of God. But rather it describes men who are pugnacious, men who are quarrelsome or too quick to fight. Finally, Paul warns against choosing men who are shamefully desirous of gain. Where the King James Version has not given to filthy lucre. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul spoke of the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote in part, For we are not as the many, selling the word of Yahweh in trade, but as from sincerity, rather as from Yahweh. So we see that Paul's opposition, the Judaizers, were evidently selling the word of God in trade. Imagine that. They were probably selling baptisms and matrimonies and works of the law. Men desirous of gain would be quick to compromise the word of God for their own benefit, seeking to enrich themselves by doing so. Such men should be put out of any office that they acquire, since the most ancient priesthoods of Mesopotamia, and probably even before that, religion has been a business. So Paul warned in 1 Timothy chapter 6 of those who were corrupting the minds of men and defrauding them of the truth, supposing piety to be a means of gain. They are still doing that same thing today, and Christianity is supposed to be the answer to that, whereas the modern organized denominations, like the medieval Roman Catholic Church, had instead only adopted Christianity for such purposes. Now Paul speaks of the positive qualities which the assembly should seek in men that are prospective leaders, and he says that They shouldn't be those things, but they should be hospitable, loving goodness, discreet, righteous, hallowed, self-controlled, holding on to the trusted word according to the teaching, in order that he would then be able to exhort with sound teaching and reprove the contradictors to be instant in scripture. The word translated as hospitality here is philozenos, Strong's number 5382, which is literally a lover of those who are entitled to one's hospitality. As we have explained, that the word xenos refers to an outsider or a sojourner who has the expectation of hospitality by custom or treaty. It does not describe any river-jumping Mexican or boat-floating Negro. It does not describe any mere alien who happens to cross into one's borders. The first definition of the word given by Liddell and Scott 
of the word xenos given by Liddell and Scott is a guest friend applied to persons and states bound by a treaty or tie of hospitality. The phrase loving goodness is the similarly constructed word philogathos and where the King James Version has lover of good man there is no word for man or implication of man in the text. Liddell and Scott define the word philogathos as loving goodness as Christ himself said to a certain young man, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, Why callest thou me good? Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Therefore the Christian leader should look for what is good in the word of God. The word for discreet, where the King James Version has sober, means to be of sound mind, not necessarily to abstain from alcohol, although drunkenness certainly is not amenable to discretion. The word for which we have hallowed is not the typical word for holy, which is hagius but a word lesser used or less frequently used in the New Testament. Hoseus, Strong's number 3741. Hoseus is defined as hallowed, sanctioned by the law of God, as it was used in the earliest times in Hesiod's Theogony and in the tragic poets. The word for just, which is dikahius, was distinguished by those same early Greek writers to refer to the justice of man opposed to hoseus, or the justice of God. We would assert that it was not so in Paul's writings, as he commonly used dikahius to describe the justice of God which exists even outside the law. For instance, throughout his epistle to the Romans, where he described the righteousness of God apart from the law, and he used the corresponding noun, dikahiosune. So we esteem that in Paul's writing, dikahios describes the justice of God which transcends the law, and the word he uses here, hoseus, can describe the justice of God found in the law as far as it can be determined by men through the word of God, as Paul also says here, that these men, hospitable, loving goodness, discreet, righteous, hallowed, which is hoseous, self-controlled, holding on to the trusted word of God, according to the teaching. The word translated here as self-controlled, is from the Greek word egkrates. And egkrates by itself, and according to Liddell and Scott, but it's pretty evident, literally only means in possession of power, holding fast, stout, or strong, or having possession of a thing, or to be master of a thing. So here in the context of these other words, 
it is interpreted to mean self-controlled. But it may instead refer to a man who is willing to take control of a situation as the need arises. And it may have been rendered as having control rather than self-control. Paul used a similar formative verb in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where the King James Version has and every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. The King James has temperate here and that is how they also interpreted egkrates but it could simply mean to refer to a man who has control. In other words who has good faculties of thought and doesn't have a rashness of action, but is prudent and knows what to do and, and, and figures out what to do in a situation, taking control of the situation. Where Paul said that Christian leaders should be found holding on to the trusted word according to the teaching, he is referring to the word of the Old Testament. As he said in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 15, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And that epistle to the Romans was written one year after this epistle to Titus. Right around one year. Likewise, he said in the similar instructions which he gave in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which was written very close to, if not at the same time, as this epistle to Titus, where he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is not, I'm sorry, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And once again, he was referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament, Paul continues now with another warning. For there are many insubordinates, vain talkers, and deceivers of minds, especially those from among the circumcision, whom it is necessary to muzzle, who upset entire houses, teaching things which are not necessary for reason of shameful profit. These are the men that teach salvation by works, these are the men that entrap you when they convince you that you must be baptized to be saved or you must do this to be saved or you must do that to be saved when Jesus Christ already saved each and every one of the children of Israel. I call that sacramentalism but it's really Judaic Phariseeism. Paul evidently says these things to recall the treachery of the Judaizers to the attention of Titus. But Titus had already seen the disputes of Paul with the Judaizers as he had accompanied Paul to Antioch and also visited Jerusalem with him as it is recorded in Acts chapter 18. After Paul leaves Corinth, he brings Titus with him. Of this encounter, Paul had written in Galatians chapter 2 where he says, then after 14 years, and now it's about 52 AD, 14 years after 
the meeting of Paul and Barnabas with the apostles, recorded in Acts chapter 15. Then after 14 years, I had again gone up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I had gone up after a revelation and laid upon them the good message which I proclaim among the nations, but privately to those of repute, lest in any way I strive or have strived in vain. Yet not even Titus, who with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised by those privily introduced false brethren, such who infiltrate to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Yahshua, in order that they may enslave us, to whom not even for a minute did we yield in subjection, at which the truth of the good message would persevere for the sake of you. When Paul arrived in the Troad, and learned that Titus had gone back to Crete, Paul must have also learned that the, that there were Judaizers operating among the Cretans. So in relation to what he had just said concerning these Judaizers, he then says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slothful gluttons. This testimony is true, for which cause you must censure them relentlessly, that they would be sound in the faith. According to the 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Creque, Paul is quoting here from the ancient Cretan poet Epimenides and his work Pericresmon, which means about oracles, and which is lost along with all of his other writings. But other sources attribute this citation to a work called the Cretica, which basically means about Crete, which is presently only known to scholars through a 9th century commentary on the book of Acts written by a Syrian and first translated into English in 1906 when it was published by one Professor J. Rendell Harris in a series of articles in a publication called The Expositor. We will have the appropriate links with our notes. This seems to be factual. This account seems to be factual. But for some reason, the credit to Epimenides himself as the source for this citation has completely disappeared from the 28th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece. So the 27th edition says that Paul was quoting Epimenides and Pericresmon, but in the 28th edition it doesn't say anything. It's pretty blank on where Paul was quote, on who Paul was quoting from. Epimenides was a Cretan poet who was mentioned by later Greek writers such as Aristotle, Athanasius, Diogenes Laertius, and Plutarch. However, all accounts of him and his work seem to be apocryphal. Paul of Tarsus must have known more about Epimenides than we can know from the literature which survives today, 
And even though the attribution was removed from the most recent publication of the Novum Testamentum Grecae, we cannot imagine who it may belong to if it is not from Epimenides. And J. Rendell Harris, who translated the Syrian commentary in which a fragment of the Cretica was found, was himself persuaded that it did belong to Epimenides. A near exact passage is found in the Hymn to Zeus, written by the 3rd century B.C. Greek poet Callimachus. But Callimachus was a native of Cyrene, a Greek colony on the coast between Egypt and Carthage, and Paul could not have called Callimachus a prophet of their own in relation to the Cretans, so he must have been referring to Epimenides. But by calling Epimenides a prophet of their own, Paul is not recognizing the poet as a prophet of Yahweh God. Rather, he is only acknowledging the esteem which Epimenides was said to have had among the Cretans, which is described in some of those later apocryphal accounts of his life. At any rate, without delving into the theology expressed in the wider passage of Epimenides and repeated in Callimachus, he is credited with having written that Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. The phrase which we translated as slothful gluttons may likewise have literally been translated as idle bellies. In the context in which it appears in the medieval Syrian commentary on the book of Acts, the line is not readily recognized as a paradox. But this line is popularly called among scholars the paradox of Epimenides. It only seems to be a paradox because it was written by Epimenides, who was a Cretan, and seems to have been discussed as a paradox by scholars at least since the mid-18th century. And with that, it is also evident that scholars were able to connect the saying to Epimenides even before the discovery of the Syrian commentary on the Book of Acts probably because Epimenides might be the only notable Cretan poet. I really don't know if that's true or not, but I never heard of another one. Now, according to logic, if Epimenides, being a Cretan, writes that the Cretan are always liars, he is very likely lying because he is a Cretan, and therefore it is not true that the Cretans are always liars. But Paul is not a liar, and he is evidently taking the words of Epimenides quite seriously. And therefore he did not necessarily recognize the passage as being paradoxical. Later, the Cretan inclination for lying is evident from Plutarch's use of the word kratismos in order to describe such behavior. Plutarch who was merely a child 
when Paul wrote his epistles, follows Epimenides by about 700 years. Liddell and Scott inform us that Kratismos means Cretan behavior, i.e. lying. Paul evidently had no moral problem identifying the Cretans as liars, which may also be attributed to the extent to which he was troubled over the problems in Crete for which he writes Titus here. However, elsewhere in his epistle to the Romans, Paul wrote, Let God be true, but every man a liar. And it can indeed be argued that every man is indeed a liar, at least at one time or another. So after using their own writings to describe them as liars, Paul warns Titus that he was must censure them relentlessly, that they would be sound in the faith. Not giving heed to myths of Judaism and injunctions of men, turning themselves away from the truth. And here we see a profound warning that is relevant to this very day. That Christians should not accept Jews as authorities on the word of God. As Jews who had rejected Christ and clung to the hypocrisy of Judaism can only turn men away from the truth which is in Christ. Yahweh willing, we will commence with our commentary on the epistle to Titus at this point in the very near future. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of, the God of Israel. And good night. Brothers.